In the summer of 1741, an unprecedented revival was sweeping across New England that would become known to history as the Great Awakening. It had begun the previous year under the ministry of George Whitfield, who was itinerating throughout the region, preaching with his characteristic power and dramatic flair. It continued throughout the winter of 1740 to 1741 with the visit of Gilbert Tennant, whose ministry in Boston in those early months of 1741 had fanned into flame this revival up to a fever pitch. Throughout the spring of 1741, the revival spread out from Boston to the Connecticut River Valley to the west. This awakening was attended by ecstatic manifestations. Everywhere, it seemed, people were fainting in church services. Sermons were interrupted by cries of spiritual anguish or ecstasy. Some fell to the floor in convulsions and seizures, such that the preachers had to wait for the ecstatic to be carried out of the meeting house before they could continue with their sermon. Note that these were not Pentecostal tent revivals where such occurrences might have been expected. The Pentecostal movement would not begin for another 150 years. These were usually staid New England Puritan congregations marked by order and decorum. Seizing upon the unprecedented hour, local Puritan pastors took their cue from Whitfield and from Tennant and began itinerating around New England, trying to strike while the iron was hot, trying to reap while the fields were white unto harvest. This is what brought Jonathan Edwards, the thin 37-year-old pastor of Northampton, Massachusetts, to the town of Enfield, Connecticut on July 8th, 1741. The neighboring town of Suffield was in the throes of revival. The previous Sunday, an astounding 95 people had professed conversion. But nearby Enfield remained untouched. To remedy this situation, this band of itinerant Puritan preachers organized daily services in Enfield. And on Wednesday, it was Edward's turn to preach. When Edwards entered the meeting house and ascended the pulpit, the gathered assembly was noisy and unruly, distracted and anything but solemn. That soon changed. George Marsden, whose biography I'm following in this sermon, writes that when Edwards started to preach, the congregation of Enfield fell under the pastor's almost hypnotic spell. Edwards was nothing like Whitfield. His manner was not effusive or dramatic. He did not preach with the rhetorical flourishes of the stage. It was said that Edwards preached as if he was staring at the bell rope at the back of the meeting house. Yet he preached with a relentless intensity. His words were clear and precise. His images piercing and the sheer weight of the truth that he was conveying could lay waste to an entire congregation. Such was the effect that day in Enfield. Edwards preached from Deuteronomy 32:35, which says, Their foot shall slip in due time. Almost as soon as he began, the previously light-hearted congregation became deathly silent as the realization dawned upon their souls that they were irreparably damned. 
Then the silence turned to mourning and then to crying and shrieking and wailing. Edwards had to stop and ask for silence, but the, the sound of the cries only increased in pitch. Finally, Edwards simply gave up and came down from the pulpit. He never finished the sermon. The pastors who were nearby went down into the congregation and they began to minister among the people individually. And eventually the congregation was sufficiently quieted so that they sang a closing hymn, offered a closing prayer, and were dismissed. That sermon became Edward's most famous of his entire career. The title is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And in it, Edwards argues that at this very moment, God holds sinners in his hands over the flames of his wrath, delaying momentarily at least, and in an act of unfathomable grace, the eternal destruction that our sins deserve. God, said Edwards, is ferociously holy, which means that he hates evil with an infinite intensity, even as he loves what is good with equal passion. God is angry with sinners, yet he withholds his judgment, and in his patience, he is giving them time to repent. It is the weight of their sins, the sheer gravitational pool of depravity, which drags sinners into the flames of hell, yet it is the restraining hand of God which holds them up, said Edwards, for now at least. According to Marsden, what is so extraordinary in this sermon is not such doctrines as hell and eternal punishment, but the sustained imagery Edwards employs to pierce the hearts of the hearers. Sinners in the hands of an angry God is so remarkable because Edwards employed so many images and addressed them so immediately to his hearers that they were left with no escape. In this sermon, Edwards compares the unconverted man to one who walks over the abyss of hell on rotted boards. All while arrows of death fly unseen and and whisk past his head at every moment. He said, your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. All your righteousness has no more effect than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. The wrath of God is like great waters that are dammed up for the present, yet they increase more and more and rise higher and higher with every moment. The bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string and justice bends the arrow and directs it towards your heart. It strains the bow and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being drunk with your blood. That God holds you over the pit of hell much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. 
You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet tis nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. Tis to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you haven't gone to hell since you sat here in the house of God provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you don't this very moment drop down into hell. Oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. By the time Edward spoke that last line, the congregation was in such hysterics that he could not go any further. Now, if people today know the name of Jonathan Edwards at all, this is what they know of him. And this is because sinners in the hands of an angry God has found its way into most anthologies of American literature as an example of colonial Puritanism. Therefore, students in their junior year in high school or their freshman year in college read a portion of the sermon, hear their teacher or their professor talk about those sadistic, pre-modern, witch-burning Puritans, and just like that, a man who very well may be the most brilliant mind the New World has ever produced, a man who is certainly the most influential figure in American Protestant evangelicalism, is held up to open scorn. Now, I suggest to you this morning that that is horribly unfair and unbelievably biased. Therefore, knowing that when most of you think of Jonathan Edwards, you think sinners in the hands of an angry God, I want to just point out three truths. First, there is not one image which Edwards employs in that sermon which is not grounded in biblical truth. I submit to you that our natural aversion to some of his imagery is owing to our natural aversion to the biblical doctrine of eternal punishment. But this is what it sounds like when someone takes the biblical teaching on hell with utter seriousness. Take Edward's sermon... Hold it up next to certain passages in Revelation, or indeed the Gospels, where Jesus says of those who are damned that their worm does not die, and their fire is not quenched. And you will find that Edwards is merely elaborating upon a theme firmly established throughout the pages of Scripture. Second, Edwards did not get to finish his sermon, and most people don't read to the end either. If they would, they would recognize that the terrors of hell are not the main point. Listen to the way Edwards intended to conclude that sermon. You have an extraordinary opportunity right now. This is a day when Christ has thrown open the door of his mercy. He is standing right now calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners. Many are flocking to him, coming into the kingdom of God. They are coming every day from the east and the west and the north and the south. Many that were in the same miserable condition that you are in are now happy and blessed. Their hearts are filled with love for him who has loved them and has washed them from their sins in his own blood. They are right now rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. How terrible a thing it is to be left behind on such a day. Look at these others who are feasting while you are perishing with hunger. Look at how many are rejoicing and singing with joy in their hearts while you have reason to weep and to cry with a heart full of sorrows. 
How can you rest one moment more in such a condition? Are not the souls here as precious as the souls of the people at Suffield, where they are flocking every day to Christ? And the evangelistic call continues to the very end with Edward's characteristic intensity. In other words, sinners in the hands of an angry God is not ultimately a sermon of judgment, but of mercy. Had he been allowed to finish, Edwards was to conclude with these words. Now I cry to everyone who is outside of Christ, awake and flee from the wrath to come. Third, this sermon is not at all reflective of the balance of Edwards' ministry. Marsden writes, quote, Edwards had offered this one brief gospel word, but indeed, if one had taken this sermon as characteristic of his preaching, it would have been dreadfully out of balance. Edwards could take for granted, however, that a New New England audience knew well the gospel remedy. The problem was getting them to seek it. In other words, they knew the gospel because Edwards so often preached it. Edwards loved the gospel, and he declared the gospel just as relentlessly as he declared everything else. To get a glimpse of the evangelical balance which marked Jonathan Edwards' ministry, it helps to note that the very same summer, in the throes of the Great Awakening, Edwards received a letter from an 18-year-old girl named Deborah Hathaway who had been converted under his preaching at Suffield, Connecticut. Just a few months earlier, and she was asking what she should do now. How do I, how do I go about the Christian life? And Edwards responds to this 18-year-old girl with a long letter that is so gentle and pastoral in its tone. And he tells her about the battle with sin that she now faces. And he says, don't be at all discouraged or disheartened by it. For though we are exceedingly sinful, yet we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, the preciousness of whose blood and the merit of whose righteousness and the greatness of whose love and faithfulness does infinitely overtop the highest mountains of our sins. This letter, which is known today as advice to young converts, became, next to sinners in the hands of an angry God, Edward's most printed work. So who was this man who stands at the center of the greatest revival in modern evangelical history, at whose preaching entire congregations were melted into utter terror or unspeakable joy? Why is a man regarded as the most brilliant mind in American history, whose influence in his own and in succeeding generations was so great that whole theological systems were measured by how closely they adhered or how widely they diverged from his own theology? Why is he now reduced to a mere footnote on the pages of American history, known for a single sermon which is often just offered to be held up to scorn? Who is Jonathan Edwards and why should his words still carry weight in our own day, indeed, in our own church? Jonathan Edwards was born on October 5th, 1703 in East Windsor, Connecticut. The only son of Timothy and Esther Edwards, Jonathan was sandwiched between ten sisters. Timothy was the pastor of a Puritan church, which was remarkable considering the family from which he had come. His mother was afflicted by severe psychosis, and she was a perverse and chronic adulteress. His aunt had murdered her own child. His great uncle had killed his sister with an axe. 
Marsden writes, quote, Jonathan Edwards is sometimes criticized for having too dim a view of human nature, but it may be helpful to be reminded that his grandmother was an incorrigible profligate, his great aunt committed infanticide, and his great uncle was an axe murderer. You would have a dim view of humanity as well. At any rate, Timothy Edwards managed to attend Harvard, enter the pastorate, and marry into a prominent Puritan ministerial family. And so despite all odds, Jonathan was raised in a stable, loving, if exacting, home. Jonathan was a precocious child, both intellectually and spiritually. He had an innate thirst for knowledge, and his journals and writings testify to an insatiable curiosity, particularly in the realm of natural science. He drank in the words, as a 13-year-old, of John Locke and Isaac Newton. He viewed the physical universe much like Calvin had, as the theater of God's glory, which is ceaselessly flowing forth with God's language. And Edward set himself from an early age to learning how to interpret this divine speech in nature. He also exhibited a keen spiritual sensitivity from a very young age. The church in which he grew up in East Windsor experienced two notable awakenings during Jonathan's childhood. The first when he was nine years old and the second when he was 12. Each time Jonathan was affected. He he showed hopeful signs of grace, but Timothy Edwards' father had extraordinarily high standards for true conversion. For Timothy, conversion followed a very strict three-step process. First, there was an awakening to, an, to a sense of one's sins and the danger of eternal punishment. This would be followed by a period of humiliation in which the penitent sinner grieved over his sin and his deserved condemnation and assiduously sought God for the grace of conversion. And finally, if God granted it, regeneration would occur in which the power of sin would be broken and a confident faith and joy would flood the sinner's heart. Marsden humorously quotes, or notes, rather, that seldom has there been a spiritual discipline where so much effort was put into recognizing the worthlessness of one's own efforts. To put it in perspective, in the 1716 revival, while a good proportion of the hundreds of townspeople in East Windsor professed to be seeking God's converting grace, hundreds, only 13 met with Timothy Edwards' high standards so as to be received into full communion in the church. And Jonathan was one of those whose experience didn't measure up in his father's eyes. The inability to convince his father continued on into adulthood, and the reality of his own conversion was often in question and contributed to a problem of assurance that would plague him for much of the the next two decades. When Edwards was 13 years old, he left home to begin college in nearby Wethersfield. The Connecticut General Assembly founded Yale College in New Haven, Connecticut, and Edwards moved there to begin his third year. College life suited Edwards, especially access to Yale's growing library. And in 1720, at the age of 17, he graduated valedictorian of his class. During his senior year, he fell seriously ill and was for a time terrified that he would die. And he later wrote down that it was as though God shook me over the pit of hell, which was an image that would uh, occur later on in his sinners in the hands of an angry God. Edwards then renewed his efforts at seeking conversion, and for a time he believed he had found it. 
But soon those efforts waned. Marsden writes, self-discipline had failed as much as it had succeeded. Self-examination was not encouraging either. As early as he could remember, he had resented much of the endless tedium of his parents' teaching and discipline. Holiness seemed a melancholy, morose, sour, and unpleasant thing, in Edward's own words. He did not delight in lengthy church services. He still had a rebellious nature. He was proud. He had a difficult and unsociable personality, and he did not have the signs of charity that were evidence of grace. He struggled with sexual lusts, which, despite prodigious efforts... He could not wholly control, end quote. Edward stayed at Yale another year in order to read for his Master of Arts, and it was then, at the age of 16, that the decisive event in Edward's spiritual life took place. Much of that year was spent in a, a very miserable spiritual state as Edwards was yearning for conversion, but convinced that he had not yet attained it. He struggled immensely, against the doctrine of God's sovereign election. He had been raised in a God-centered Calvinistic theology, but this was at war with the humanistic spirit of the age to which he was so naturally drawn. And so he wrestled day by day and night by night against the sovereignty of God. As Marsden describes it, once he had stared death in the face, once he had been shaken over the pit of hell, he could not rest until his heart rested in God. He desperately wanted to trust in God, yet he could not believe in, let alone submit to, such a tyrant. At last, after a long season of wrestling that looks very much like Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord in Genesis 32, God won the victory. Edwards found himself, in spite of himself, convinced of the justice of God in, quote, eternally disposing of men according to his sovereign pleasure. He said, I never could give an account how or by what means I was thus convinced of the sovereignty of God, not in the least imagining in the time of it, nor a long time after, that there was any extraordinary influence of God's spirit in it. But only that now I saw further and my reason apprehended the justice and the reasonableness of it all. The submission of Edward's soul to the sovereignty of God was soon followed by a growing, inflaming affection for God. A love affair that would continue through the rest of his life. The spring and summer of 1721 were filled with more rapturous moments of spiritual ecstasy. You're going to come to find out that Edwards, quite contrary to his caricature, was something of a charismatic. Edwards read the words of 1 Timothy 1.17. Now unto the King eternal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Those are words that he had read hundreds of times before, but now it seemed as if the incomprehensible greatness of God overwhelmed his soul like a flood. He wrote, there came into my soul and was, as it were, diffused through it, a sense of the glory of the divine being, a new sense, quite different from anything I ever experienced before. And I thought with myself how excellent a being that was and how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped up to God in heaven and be, as it were, swallowed up in him. Edwards was captivated by the attributes of God. What he called the sweet conjunction, the majesty and the meekness of God joined together. 
It was a sweet and gentle and holy majesty. And also a majestic meekness, an awful sweetness, a high and great and holy gentleness. By the time he was 16 years old, Jonathan Edwards was a man completely besotted with God. Well, this rapturous season did not altogether cure Edwards' struggles, but he would never be the same. In 1722, at the age of 19, Edwards went to New York City to serve as an interim pastor to a small Presbyterian church in town. And after eight months, he moved back home to East Windsor and back into his father's house to prepare for the defense of his master's thesis, which was coming up in September. Now, it seems that during that summer, Edwards, as often happens when kids move back home, he, uh, he got into some disputes with his father. And it seems that at the center of these disputes was his father's continued unwillingness to confirm his conversion and to receive him into membership of his church. Now, this clearly had a devastating effect on Jonathan's own assurance. Jonathan, who was given to both the heights of spiritual ecstasy and the depths of spiritual despair, eventually feared that perhaps his parents were right. And the question of how one could discern true conversion would become a lifelong study of Edwards, especially in the aftermath of the Great Awakening, and would eventually result in one of Edwards' most important and famous works on the religious affections. The commencement of 1723 was an electric time in the life of Yale College, The previous year, Timothy Cutler, the rector of the college, and a handful of tutors and students had publicly renounced Puritanism with its Calvinistic theology, and they had joined the hated Anglican church. There's nothing worse if you're a Puritan than an Anglican. When Edwards, as valedictorian, was invited to give the commencement address, he went straight to the issue that was on everyone's minds. He had, he had everyone's captive attention, and so he just thought he would address the elephant in the room. Edwards presented a vigorous defense of Orthodox Calvinism from justification by the imputation of Christ's righteousness through faith alone to the regulative principle of worship. And in so doing, he clearly disassociated himself from the Church of England and established himself firmly in the Orthodox camp. From that time on, Edwards became a leading voice of Puritan orthodoxy. In preparation for his defense of his MA thesis and his commencement address, Edwards spent much time in the Yale Library. But it wasn't only the growing collection of books that was attracting his attention to New Haven. There was a certain young lady there, the sister, the younger sister of one of his, his college mates, a woman by the name, a young woman by the name of Sarah, who had caught his eye. And this began a four-year courtship that resulted in their marriage in 1727. Now, Sarah Edwards is a remarkable woman. And she deserves her own biography, and one day we'll maybe give it to her. It takes a remarkable woman to live with Jonathan Edwards for 31 years. Uh, It takes a remarkable woman to raise 11 extraordinary children, to endure 23 years among a cantankerous people in Northampton, and another seven years out on the frontier as a missionary to the Mohawk Indians. 
Sarah was a woman of beauty, of sharp intelligence, of spiritual vitality, and she was absolutely the love of Jonathan's life, humanly speaking at least. Their marriage was a happy one, and their happy marriage and their happy home betrays the lie of the common caricature of Puritans as dour, grumpy legalists who keep a close watch on their neighbors just to make certain that no one around here is having any fun. If you had stayed the night in the Edwards home, you would have been struck by the impression that this was one of the happiest and holiest families that you had ever encountered. And that had just as much to do with Sarah as it did with Jonathan. Upon his graduation with his masters in September of 1723, Jonathan, rather reluctantly, accepted the pastorate in Bolton, Connecticut, a position that his father had managed to procure for him. It seems that this pastorate was of a temporary nature because six months later, in May of 1724, Edwards returned to New Haven to accept a position as tutor at Yale. And his next three years at Yale were were unhappy ones, despite his close proximity and his growing love for Sarah. The work was hard, the students were incorrigible, and once again, Jonathan was assaulted by doubts as to the reality of his conversion. In the fall of 1727, Edwards wrote in his diary, "'Tis just about three years that I have been, for the most part, in a low, sunk estate and condition." miserably senseless to what I used to be about spiritual things. T'was three years ago, the week before commencement, just about the same time this year, I began to be somewhat as I used to be. In other words, his three years spent as a tutor or professor at Yale were years of spiritual deadness and depression, about which we will have more to say in a bit. In the fall of 1726, Edwards was invited to become the assistant pastor of the church in Northampton, Massachusetts, under his famous and influential grandfather, Solomon Stoddard. This was an incredible opportunity for the 23-year-old, and he eagerly accepted. Edwards served underneath his grandfather until Solomon's death in 1729, at which time he became, at the age of 26, the senior minister of the Northampton Church, a congregation of some 1,300 people. Edwards had not seen eye to eye with his grandfather on some important matters of ecclesiology, and his grandfather, being far more permissive in his membership standards than Edwards would have liked, with the result that Edwards inherited something of a mess. Sexual promiscuity, premarital pregnancies, drunkenness, And a generally rebellious youth culture abounded in Northampton. And quite predictably, Edwards' exacting standards of holiness and discipline created continual tensions with the townsfolk that he was called the shepherd. With the exception of two periods of revival, his relationship with the Northampton congregation was a contentious one and led to his eventual termination in 1750. In all, Edwards pastored four different churches over the course of a 35-year ministry, 25 of them in Northampton. His life as a pastor was not easy. It was filled with frequent tensions and strife, but they were not without their joyful seasons of tremendous, mind-boggling fruitfulness. In 1734, Northampton experienced an amazing awakening of the Spirit 
And it was this revival that would catapult Jonathan onto the international stage. In April of 1734, a young man in the congregation died suddenly of pleurisy. And his tragic passing arrested the attention of everyone in town, particularly the youth. When Edwards preached the funeral sermon, he took as his text Psalm 90, verses 5 and 6, which reads, In the morning they are like grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourisheth and groweth up. In the evening it is cut down and withereth. Edwards emphasized the the fleeting and fragile nature of life and the need to be immediately reconciled to God through repentance and faith. And the sermon had such a dramatic effect upon the congregation that young and old began seeking conversion with great vigor. By fall of 1734, Northampton was in full-blown revival and the entire culture of the town was transformed. Lay prayer meetings were springing up all over accompanied by the joyful singing of the new hymns coming over from England from the pen of Isaac Watts. And around this time, Edwards published one of his most famous sermons, a work that encapsulates his theology of true conversion. In the sermon, which is entitled, A Divine and Supernatural Light, Edwards argues that what distinguishes the saints from the unconverted is that the Holy Spirit dwells within the hearts of believers and gives them the power to apprehend the things of God. Marsden writes, This new sense is not an ability to have visions or to gain new information that goes beyond Scripture or to experience intense religious emotions. Rather, it is the power necessary to appreciate the spiritual light that radiates from God the power to hear the communication of God's love that pervades the universe. It is a power to appreciate beauty or excellency, specifically the beauty and the excellency of Christ. Such knowledge is qualitative and effective, not simply rational or theoretical. It is in a familiar image like the difference, these are Edward's words, like the difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of, of its sweetness. The spiritually enlightened person does not rationally believe that God is glorious, rather he has a sense of the gloriousness of God in his heart. The extraordinary awakening endured through the spring of 1735, during which time the town seems to have been transformed from the top to the bottom. And one of the extraordinary effects of this revival was that sickness seems to have completely disappeared from the town for about a year. During bi-monthly communion services, 80 to 100 people at a time would make profession of conversion and be received into communicant membership. It seemed to Edwards that nearly everyone in the town was either converted or almost there, such that the member of the church would soon be coextensive with the citizenship of, of Northampton. And so in his enthusiasm for the work of God which he was witnessing, Edwards wrote an account of the revival entitled, A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God and the Conversion of Many Hundred Souls in Northampton. And he sent it off to Boston where it was published, and it was sent across the sea to to England and Scotland. And it was this work that made Edwards internationally famous. But, as in Jesus' famous parable, It seemed that Satan had sowed tares among the wheat. 
And in the summer of 1735, the enemy struck a deadly blow that brought Northampton and its awakening to a screeching halt. On Sunday morning, June 1st, 1735, one of Northampton's most prominent citizens and Edward's own uncle, Joseph Hawley Jr., slit his own throat in his barn and died. At the height of the awakening, just a few months earlier, Hawley had come under conviction of his sin, and he was already given to that family line of depression and mental instability, and he was unable to find peace and assurance in conversion, and so eventually he despaired of his own salvation, and he took his own life. And suddenly, there began a brief but serious epidemic of suicide throughout the whole county which effectively brought the awakening of 1734 and 1735 to an end. And over time, people's attentions just diverted to other matters. Now, news traveled slowly in the mid-18th century. So by the time that Edward's faithful narrative was gaining the wide reading over in England and Scotland and was winning for Edward's this international renown, back in Northampton, the spiritual state of the people was in a precipitous decline. Edwards wrote to a Boston pastor in 1737 that while he was heartened by the book's success and the, and the fervor for revival that it seemed to be sparking, quote, at the same time, it is a great damp to the joy to consider how we decline here and what decays that lively spirit and religion suffers amongst us while others are rejoicing and praising God for us. Two impulses began to grow within Edwards in the years after the Northampton Awakening. On the one hand, he he desperately longed to return to the spiritual fervor that marked the city in those early days, when it seemed that every citizen was touched by the Spirit and showed this intense, desperate concern for eternal realities. On the other hand, having been fooled by so many who showed hopeful signs of conversion only then to return to their worldly lives, Edwards began thinking deeply about what were the true marks of conversion. Therefore, when George Whitfield visited New England in the summer and the fall of 1740, and revival seemed once again to be following in his wake, Edwards greeted it with enthusiasm, but also with a healthy degree of caution. When Whitfield visited Northampton in October of 1740 and preached the Sunday morning service there, Whitfield himself reported that Edwards wept during the whole time of the morning exercises. Marsden says Edward's uncontrollable tears came from seeing what he had prayed for so desperately for the past five years, that the intensity of the revival of 1734 to 35 would be renewed. In the weeks and months that followed, he was not disappointed as the flame that Whitfield had reignited spread once again throughout the town, often more intensely than it had before. Now this new revival in the early years of the 1740s became known as the Great Awakening. And Jonathan Edwards became one of its most prominent voices, lending both his considerable support to the promotion and the defense of the revival and his considerable wisdom as a a voice of caution, which served to restrain the more fanatical elements that were attaching themselves to the awakening. And he, he attempted to bring it back from these unbiblical extremes. During the awakening, Edwards published three very important works in this regard. One uh, is entitled Distinguishing Marks of the Work of the Spirit of God, which he preached in 1741 
uh, at the Yale commencement service while the college was in danger of fracturing over the Great Awakening. The second, uh, he called some thoughts concerning the present revival of religion in New England and the way in which it ought to be acknowledged and promoted, which once again is a defense of the Great Awakening and a caution to its more extreme elements. And then finally, in the midst of the Great Awakening, Edwards preached a series of sermons on the proper place of emotion in the lives of the faithful, sermons which then became known as a treatise concerning the religious affections, which was published in 1746. Now, I want to highlight on this work in particular, because this book differed from the previous two. In the previous two, um, Edwards was primarily working to defend the awakening from its critics, as well as to restrain the more extreme elements of the awakening. This work, however, was addressed to those who had been affected by the awakening, and it was designed to prevent the kind of relapse that he had experienced in his own Northampton church. Edwards asserted that far more damage had been done throughout church history by counterfeit Christians who fatally corrupted true works of the Spirit than by those who were openly opposed and hostile to the church. Thus, the religious affections had two primary aims, one negative and one positive. Negatively, Edwards sought to show that intense emotional experiences in and of themselves were no sure sign of a work of the Spirit of God. And so he proceeded to give 12 signs of religious fervor that were common in the Great Awakening, like faintings and convulsions and shrieks and wails and visions and those things. He, he, he went one by one and he listed them and he concluded and showed that they were no sure and certain sign that it was a true work of God's Spirit because they could be counterfeited. Positively then... Edwards elaborated upon 12 signs that were sure and certain signs of a work of grace upon the sinner's heart because they could not be counterfeited. And so the main thesis of the religious affections was that true faith in great part consists in holy emotions. It's not what you think of when you think of the Puritans, is it? True faith consists in great part, in holy emotions, holy affections. How can you tell where true faith exists? It exists where there is love for Christ, love for people, love for Scripture, love for holiness, love for truth, and love for the glory of God. There is, according to Edwards, no such thing as an unfeeling faith. Yet feeling alone is no evidence of true faith. Edwards also emphasized caution in judging the faith of others, showing that the best evidence of true faith is the persevering fruit of these holy affections. So far more than sinners in the hands of an angry God, the treatise concerning the religious affections represents the core of Edwards' contribution to the Great Awakening. Once again, however, Edwards would be disappointed in the lasting results of the awakening among his Northampton congregation. The genuine work of God in the lives of many was undeniable, but by and large, the town remained unchanged. Over the next six years, Edwards moved from one conflict to the next. 
His relationship with influential members of the community steadily decreased until Edwards was finally dismissed from his pastorate in 1750. And thus the most famous and influential American voice of the Great Awakening was fired from his own church. Edwards received an offer to pastor a mission church in the Massachusetts frontier village of Stockbridge. And in 1751, he accepted and moved his family west to the Berkshires. But conflict found him in Stockbridge as well. Edwards struggled to mediate between the white colonialist settlers and their Mohawk neighbors. Once again, he found himself at odds with the influential members of the town. And in 1755, war broke out between the British colonies and the French and Indian alliance to the north and the west. The Edwards family lived within earshot of cannon fire and was in constant danger of raids from hostile Indian tribes. The smaller congregation of Stockbridge did, however, afford Edwards the opportunity to write and to think, and it was during those years that he completed some of his most influential masterpieces of theological depth and precision, works like The Freedom of the Will and Original Sin and The End for Which God Created the World. Eventually, the relations between Edwards and the Dwight Williams clan of Stockbridge grew so acrimonious that Edwards accepted an offer that came from the trustees of Princeton College to become their president, and he reluctantly accepted. Edwards had strong ties to Princeton College, as his son-in-law, Aaron Burr Sr., okay, yes, that Aaron Burr, Aaron Burr, sir, was Edwards' grandson. Edwards, Aaron Burr Sr. was the college president until his untimely death in 1757, And upon his death, they called his father-in-law, Jonathan, to come and to be their next president. Jonathan accepted, and he moved to Princeton in January of 1758. He was installed as president of the college on February 16th. And I got to tell you, it's almost painful for me to think of all that Edwards, then only 55 years old, could have accomplished in the academic world of the fledgling college. The books he could have written, the influence he could have wielded, had he not died. But Edwards, ever the scientist and on the forefront of learning, received a smallpox inoculation on February the 23rd, and by March 22nd, he was dead. His daughter, Esther Burr, with whom he was living in Princeton until his wife and family could join him, died six weeks later. Four months after that, Sarah herself was seized with dysentery and died in Philadelphia, which is a reminder of just how precarious life could be in the mid-18th century. For more than a century after his death, Jonathan Edwards remained the most influential American theologian. But by the early decades of the 20th century, writes George Marsden, Puritan bashing had become widely acceptable as a way for progressive Americans to free themselves from Victorian moralism, and Jonathan Edwards became an easy target. He was caricatured as dour and surly and legalistic, a hellfire Calvinist who represented the worst of American Puritanism. Beginning in the 1940s, however, his reputation began to experience something of a renaissance. Yale University, which housed the entire corpus of Edwards' manuscripts, began a massive project to collect all of his writings into a massive 26-volume critical edition that was only completed about 20 years ago. And it was this work that inaugurated a new phase in the study of the life and thought of Jonathan Edwards. 
The past 20 years have also seen a resurgence of attention to Edwards among Reformed evangelicals like us, who are only beginning to realize that one of the greatest theologians the church has ever produced lived right here on our shores. Pastoring a small-town church for nearly 30 years, while writing some of the most influential works of theology in the last 300 years. In a very real sense, Jonathan Edwards is the father of American evangelicalism. So what does Edwards have to teach First Baptist Nixa on this Reformation Day 2019? Well, the answer to that question could take hours, so buckle up. No, I'm kidding. I'm going to roll through seven brief Lessons from the life and legacy of Jonathan Edwards this morning as we close. Number one, even those who have the gospel, namely Protestants, can obscure the gospel by placing the focus upon what transpires within the heart of man rather than what transpired upon the cross of Christ. If I have one critique of Puritanism, it would be this that it had the tendency, exemplified in Edward's father, Timothy, to promote an unhealthy degree of introspection, which focused more upon the particular experience of conviction of sin and upon the quality of one's faith than upon Christ himself. Now, this was, of course, a reaction against the nominal and purely intellectual faith of establishment Anglicanism, the Anglicanism that the Puritans had tried to purify but it could be just as destructive. I ascribe the cause of Edward's long and protracted struggle with assurance, a struggle that was shared by many Puritans of his own day, to the fact that their focus was often upon the quality of their own faith rather than upon the object of their faith, namely the crucified and risen Christ. At First Baptist Nixa, we must maintain a healthy balance between emphasizing that there must, there must, there must, there must be an internal transformative change, a new birth, or else conversion is not true and real. But this internal transformative change, this new birth, happens as we set our faith and our eyes upon Christ whose blood atones for every sin and whose righteousness covers our shame and our nakedness. So, beloved, as long as your hope and your confidence is in the blood and the righteousness of Christ, you have no need to fear, for you will never fall. Second, conversion, if taken seriously, can be a long and confusing process. And it is fundamentally intertwined with the question of God's sovereignty. Let us be done with this cookie-cutter view of conversion that is so rampant in modern evangelicalism that says, just raise your hand or walk an aisle or pray a prayer or ask Jesus into your heart, and that's that. No, what that is, is easy believism. It's decisional regeneration, and it is decimating the modern church. Conversion is first a work of God and not of man, and second, a fundamental, essential change in the core of one's being from one of innate hostility toward God's rule and reign to a wholehearted embrace of God's rule and reign. You will recall that Edward's conversion travail was wrapped up in this deep, struggle over the sovereignty of God and that this struggle was resolved when Edward submitted to God's sovereignty. 
Listen to Edward's own recounting of that experience. He says, from my childhood up, my mind has been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty in choosing whom he would to eternal life and rejecting whom he pleased, leaving them eternally to perish and be everlastingly tormented in hell. It used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me. But I remember the time very well when I seemed to be convinced and fully satisfied as to this sovereignty of God and his justice and thus eternally disposing of men according to his sovereign pleasure. But never could I give an account of how or by what means I was thus convinced, not in the least imagining at the time nor a long time after that there was any extraordinary influence of God's spirit in it but only that now I saw further and my reason apprehended the justice and the reasonableness of it. However, my mind rested in it and it put an end to all those objections. And there has been a wonderful alteration in my mind with respect to the doctrine of God's sovereignty from that day to this, so that I scarce ever have found so much as the rising of an objection against it in its most absolute sense, in God showing mercy whom he will show mercy and hardening whom he will. God's absolute sovereignty and justice with respect to salvation and damnation is what my my mind seems to rest assured of as much as of anything that I see with my eyes. At least it is so at times. I have often since not only had a conviction, but a delightful conviction. The doctrine has very often appeared exceedingly pleasant, bright, and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. But my first conviction was not so. At First Baptist Nixa, we emphasize God's absolute sovereignty because we believe it to be vitally connected to the experience of conversion, the submitting of the whole self to the rule and reign of God. Third, the true test of conversion is found in renewed affections, specifically in affection for God's glory manifested in the interplay of God's majesty and his mercy. This was the core truth expressed by Edwards in different ways at different times. Edwards was not against what we would term today as charismatic experiences. He had them himself, as did his wife Sarah. But these did not form the core or the essence of true conversion. The essence of true conversion, according to Edwards, was a renewed heart which experienced renewed affections, renewed loves, love for God, love for Christ, love for people, love for Scripture, love for truth, love for holiness. But at the center of all these affections was a love for God's glory preeminently displayed in the interplay between the majesty and the mercy of God. The majestic creator of the cosmos who desires fellowship in his mercy with the man whom he created. The eternal son of God who became enfleshed in a tiny infant child. The sovereign Christ who upholds all things by the word of his power. Crucified in shame and agony for the sins of his people. If you want to see where the glory of God resides, it resides preeminently in the cross of Christ. The angry God whose wrath fuels the fires of hell holds in his hands, his merciful hands, sinners and calls them to repentance and to reconciliation. That was the paradox that captivated Jonathan Edwards and commanded his attention. And I propose that it ought to captivate us as well. Fourth, 
There is no necessary contradiction between deep thinking and deep feeling. Edwards was a man with a massive intellect and a massive heart. And I think that's right. And I think that can serve as a model for First Baptist Nixa. We ought to strive for both deep thinking and deep feeling. To know God truly and to enjoy God immensely. Fifth, the Christian life is a disciplined life. Edward shows us that sanctification does not happen by accident. It happens by intentionality. Edwards is perhaps the most disciplined Christian who ever lived. And yet he was not dour. There is no essential conflict between discipline and happiness. In fact, much unhappiness comes from being undisciplined. Now, we don't have the time to discuss Edwards' famous resolutions, which Edwards began when he was 19 years old, but they're a magnificent example. You ought to Google them. A magnificent example of living intentionally so as to live effectively. As a pastor, Edwards would arise at four in the morning in order to study and write and pray for 13 hours a day. Now, I'm not suggesting that as a model for you or for me. I'm only pointing out that people do not become Jonathan Edwards without working like Jonathan Edwards. So let us be a people who live our lives with discipline and intentionality so as to wring every last drop of effectiveness from this life which God has given us. Sixth. The doctrine of eternal punishment is an essential part of the preaching of the gospel. Now, I've already indicated my essential agreement with Edwards on the doctrine of hell, so I won't belabor that point now. All I'll say this morning is that the gospel is a message of salvation, and the doctrine of eternal punishment is a necessary component of the gospel message because it answers the question, saved from what? Edwards caught grief for a sermon in his own day. He's been raked over the coals for it ever since. But I submit to you this morning that unless we understand the wrath of God, we cannot understand the cross of Christ as the place where Christ endured God's furious wrath against our sins in our place. If there is no wrath of God from which we must be saved, then why, I ask, did Christ suffer and die? There is immense pressure building today to cave in on the doctrine of hell. So I encourage us to take a cue from Edwards and stand firm, declaring it boldly and calling sinners passionately to flee from the wrath that is to come. Finally, seventh, hell is not the focal point of the gospel message. God is. Contrary to the way modern anthologies of American literature make Edwards appear, Edwards was not a hellfire preacher. The doctrine of eternal punishment did not occupy the central place in Edwards' theology or his preaching. God did. The all-glorious, all-sovereign God. And so in the final analysis for Edwards, sinners do not rest in the hands of an angry God, but in the hands of a glorious God. And I'll close with this summary description from Marsden. He writes, For Edwards, God's Trinitarian essence is love. God's purpose in creating a universe in which sin is permitted must be to communicate that love to creatures. 
The highest or most beautiful love is sacrificial love for the undeserving. Those, ultimately the vast majority of humans, according to Edwards, who are given eyes to see the ineffable beauty will be enthralled by it. They will see the beauty of the universe in which unsentimental love triumphs over real evil. They will not be able to view Christ's love dispassionately, but rather will respond to it with the deepest of affections. Truly seeing such good, they will have no choice but to love it. Glimpsing such love, they will be drawn away from their self-centered universes. Seeing the beauty of the redemptive love of Christ as the true center of reality, they will love God and all that he has created. And that was the goal of Edward's ministry. 